welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Trevor Thrall. And I'm Emma Ashford. Today, we dive into an issue that has only grown in importance during the Trump era, international trade. Trump's America First approach to foreign policy has already brought with it trade wars, tariffs, treaty revisions, with plenty more fireworks surely yet to come. Along the way, Trump has managed to both raise the profile and to politicize trade in a way we haven't seen since the debate over Japanese auto imports in the 1980s, with many observers concerned that support for free trade is withering under the assault of nationalist and protectionist proponents. To make sense of all these moving pieces, we're happy to have Scott Lincecum joining us today. Scott is an international trade attorney, a visiting lecturer at Duke University's Law School, and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, as well as the author of many excellent and insightful analyses of American trade policy. Scott is going to join us today after the news via Skype. So Emma, let's let's start with that news. Um, you know, first, let's talk about uh, Gina Haspel's uh, command performance uh, up on Capitol Hill. Uh, I think you might say hauled up uh, to the Hill to brief senators about the Khashoggi ch- killing. Uh, and, you know, at this point, uh, the senators would vote to convict. Um, uh, MBS is guilty, obviously. So so what? Yeah, I think it was Bob Carker said uh, if, if MBS, if Mohammed bin Salman was in front of a jury in, in the matter of the Khashoggi killing, they would convict him in 30 minutes, which uh, sounds pretty clear to me that the, the CIA has a fairly high confidence assessment that Mohammed bin Salman did actually order this killing. Um, but nobody's been in doubt about that for a while now. So even though Haspel has effectively now confirmed this to a small group of senators, we knew this was the case several weeks ago. So really the question is whether the Trump administration will finally make some concessions to Congress on this issue or whether we're looking at them just continuing to be completely intransigent and saying we're with the Saudis no matter what, um, even as Congress sort of votes to end US support for the war in Yemen, votes to end arms sales, all of these things that are now on the horizon that were practically unthinkable six months ago. Yeah. And with the with the Democrats about to take over in the House, you have to expect more ankle biting um, on, on these issues for sure. One of the things though that I'm wondering about uh, and how it will play in the Trump White House is the fact that clearly the CIA's judgment about Khashoggi was leaked. The Trump administration was stonewalling, well, no clear evidence, no clear evidence, and then clearly there's a leak. Oh, yes, we do have clear evidence. Now, that has to just steam Donald Trump, but it also feeds into his kind of omnipresent conspiracy worries about the Mueller investigation, the deep state, the people in his own cabinet possibly who are working against him. I mean, this guy's got to be paranoid at this point. Oh, absolutely. I mean, so there's a there's a good interpretation and a bad interpretation here, right? The bad interpretation is that somebody disliked Donald Trump so much that they, probably Congress, probably not in the intelligence community, that they leaked this stuff that could have ended up giving away US sources and methods on the intelligence front and that that's really, really bad. Um, you could also look at it on a more positive note, right, though, that the Trump administration was trying to lie about something, that Secretaries Pompeo and Mattis went to Congress, and if they didn't lie, they at the very least omitted the truth, and that somebody who had access to this document leaked it so that the public wouldn't let, would know that the White House couldn't lie about intelligence. If you remember back to Iraq, that actually seems like a positive development. Yeah, it's... Um... 
there's definitely at least two sides to that to that discussion. Yeah, for sure. Uh, all right, switching continents. Um, President uh, Macron of France uh, apparently just discovered uh, in his young days, maybe for the first time, the the timeless fact that people hate taxes, uh, and um, his attempt to impose a new uh, fuel tax, a carbon tax, to help curb climate change um, sparked just massive and violent protests, surprisingly violent protests across France uh, that forced him to to do a 180. Um, I, and I love the 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 the, the protesters wearing their little yellow uh, reflective vests. Um, so they 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 call themselves the gilets jaunes, the yellow vests, because uh, in France, of all places, you you are required as a driver to keep a reflective yellow vest in your car in case you break down and you need. I mean, nanny state. But anyways, um, you know this is this is uh, crazy stuff. What's going on in France? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the, the French are out in the streets protesting about taxes and it's a day ending in why. Uh, I mean, it's not really a new development. But it is an interesting sort of case where Macron has had this really very technocratic government. This this tax was designed to offset carbon and, uh, you know, so it was a response to climate change. And instead, what he's run up against is the economic realities of the people, mostly outside Paris, actually. So even though the protests, some of them were in Paris, they were people that mostly didn't live there, came from rural areas, very dependent on cars. Um, they don't want this kind of policy imposed. These are the people who predominantly uh, supported Macron's opponents in the last election. Yeah, it's fascinating. And yet when they did a poll, 77% of the French public supports this, and I'll use the air quotes on on the podcast here, movement, because um, it's a movement without any leaders. It's a movement without demands. It's a movement that apparently was essentially, you know, like many these days, cobbled and together by social media and just sort of uh, inchoate uh, anger and uh, unhappiness. And uh, it, you know, it, it does suggest that France, like many places, is going through a period of, of fairly turbulent realignment in its politics. Yeah. Um, you know, I've seen some interesting comparisons between what Macron is doing here in France and what Justin Trudeau did in Canada. Both implemented similar taxes, but in the case of Canada, they offset the tax with various transfer payments. Um, you know, we can have an argument but whether that's good or bad, but it did at least serve to diffuse some of this anger where the Macron government just went straight for the taxes and it's caused this real backlash. Yeah. And I, I don't think, you know, whether you're buying people off or 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 building up trust and goodwill before you ask for something difficult, Macron clearly hasn't done either of those things. And so I think he's he's getting a smack about the face and neck uh, as a result. That's very very interesting stuff. Uh, okay, and you know, last and certainly not least, um, you know, I have to ask uh, Emma, as a former citizen of of the United Kingdom, current, um, uh, oh, and current even, um, is Britain really ever going to leave the EU? Are they ever going to break up? So the European Court of Justice, um, in a ruling that I have certainly can't explain, um, decided that the UK doesn't actually need permission from the rest of the EU if they want to decide to rescind their decision to leave, and since no one in Britain really likes or has anything but loathing for the deal that Theresa May has has designed for Brexit, might they all just decide it's too big a hassle to bother and go have some tea and, and stay in the EU after all? I mean, it's tempting to believe that might be the case, but uh, you know, I think I'm I'm not a legal expert, but legal experts have basically pointed out that this ruling is not as important as it seems. Um, politicians in the European Union had already indicated that they would be willing to accept it. So this isn't a legal question. This was a power question and it was already settled on that front. The thing is that there is, despite there being a fairly strong appetite in the United Kingdom to not leave the European Union, there's really no political prospect of us dialing 
all the way back at this point. I mean, the options are pretty much the deal that Theresa May is presenting to Parliament in mid-December, um, which is sort of Brexit, but we mostly stay integrated with the European Union on everything except the movement of people, um, which her own backbenchers don't like. Labour doesn't like, people that oppose Brexit don't like it, it's not clear she'll get it through. So that's one option. Another option is just no deal. And that's where we might end up. We might just crash out of the European Union with, with no deal. Um, and then the third is just there are a whole bunch of very nebulous options. Everything from, oh, well, we won't leave the European Union after all to, well, we'll have the Norwegian option. And none of those are particularly plausible. You know, if you give those things a likelihood, it's like 50% Theresa May's deal, 50% no deal, like you know, 0.1%, all those other things. So, I mean, this is really going to come down to the parliamentary debates and whether May can sway enough people to her side. And quite frankly, the margin by which she loses this vote is going to be a sign. Yeah, that's going to be fascinating. I would not uh, accept any number of pounds, euros, or dollars to have her job right now. She's like that poor uh, you know, voodoo tree in the forest where the shaman takes you to put all the evil spirits into that tree and then your life is fine as long as you avoid that tree for the rest of your life. Um, she She's the voodoo tree of British politics right now. And the poor, poor woman, uh, maybe she's like the Gorbachev or something, if you want to spin it a little bit different, you know, she, she, sort of presiding over the dissolution of the status quo and should get credit for being a brave soldier, but mostly just everyone on all sides hates her. And, you know, it may be that she did the absolute best deal that there was available but it seems unlikely anyone will ever think of it that way. Yeah. I mean, Theresa May is probably going to come out of this if she survives as prime minister, which is by no means a given at this point. Um, because if she can't convince even her own majority, her own small majority to vote for this legislation, she can't be prime minister anymore. If she survives this, she's still going to come out of it looking terrible, where people like David Cameron that agreed to the referendum in the first place, people like Boris Johnson that pushed for it, um, they're all going to come out of this looking better. And I think that's frankly a... It's politically obvious why it happened, but it's a real tragedy. Yeah. And it, and it may presage a very different British politics after the collapse or the denouement, however we want to talk about it, of this phase. Well, let's not pretend that this would not be different if we had a viable opposition party, because under Jeremy Corbyn, Labour has not been a viable opposition party. And there's no, really, when, when the Scottish National Party is perhaps the strongest voice in Parliament speaking for the whole of the UK, you know that something has gone wrong. So uh, British politics continues to just be a mess. All right. That does it for the news. Let's uh, turn now to our main topic, international trade. And joining us now is Scott Lincecum. Scott, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Okay. You know, a lot of folks who follow foreign policy and security issues aren't really experts on trade. So uh, if we could, I'd like to start with some basics. Uh, how important is international trade to the United States economy? Well, it's it's significant um, in the sense that it's, you know, around 15% of our GDP. Um, but... It's important to note that um, you know it, trade is actually less significant for the United States economy than it is for a lot of economies around the world, um, and that has good and, and bad <laughs> connotations. I mean, one is that you know the United States is a little bit is more resilient in the face of global shocks, but on the other hand, um, it means that you know uh, the vast majority of Americans just don't really care about trade because they're they're unaffected by it. Um, you know, few of us actually work in industries that, you know, face a lot of import competition or dependent on exports. Um, and so because of that, uh, you actually see, you know, a rational kind of ignorance 
Um, but that said, um, look, you know, we are we are a fully globally integrated economy, um, and through the evolution of global supply chains and uh, information technology that allows you know lawyers like me to converse with people half a world away, um, you know, we are we are fully enmeshed, and in that sense, you know, even though it's not a a disproportionate share of GDP. Uh, it still affects our daily lives um, in the ways we work and the ways we interact. And then, of course, you know, on the consumer side of things, it just makes life, you know, a whole lot better. Um, you know, studies show that you know the average family saves saves thousands of dollars due to globalization, international trade. Um, and you know, look, you just look around and you can see all of the great gadgets we have today. You know, whether it's you know your iPhone or an automobile or whatever. Um, are 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 so good and so affordable in part due to to trade. Yeah, so I mean, let's just follow that up right there and and review um, the classic debate uh, that has become sort of much more salient in the last couple of years with Trump, and, and that's just the you know debate between free trade and, and protectionism. Uh, why, why Scott are free traders so adamant about free trade? And if they're so sure they're right, why are protectionists so sure they're wrong? Free traders have, on a purely economic side of things, um, you're really dealing with uh, two main arguments. And the first are all the seen benefits, right? So, um, you know, we benefit in terms of imports. Um, not only do imports uh, give us a better quality of life in terms of having, you know, cheaper products and things we can afford, um, but they also, um, you know, help U.S. companies. You know, about half of everything we import is manufacturing inputs, so stuff used by our manufacturers to make other stuff. Um, this is very beneficial in terms of keeping manufacturers globally competitive, allowing them to produce more for less, um, improving efficiency, productivity, all that great stuff. Um, on then, of course, there's export markets. You know, our farm sector, for example, is heavily dependent on exports, as they are unfortunately realizing <laughs> right now. Um, and then, you know, whether it's a big multinational manufacturer like Boeing or whatever, you know, these these export markets, these growing export markets, are are important, particularly when you think that you know about 95% of the world's consumers live outside of the United States, and they are getting richer every day, and so that they that is an important new source of of economic growth for the United States. So those are your seen benefits. Uh, but I think, you know, economists and free traders give short shrift, I think, to the unseen benefits, which in my opinion are, are actually a lot more important in the sense that what trade does is essentially inject additional competition into our economy. And that competition, which, you know, you can't really see, has really tremendous benefits in terms of prodding innovation um, and in terms of uh, comparative advantage and allowing the United States to focus on what we do best, allowing workers to focus on what we do best, um, and thus creating kind of better, uh, better jobs, better industries. And those types of things you can't see, right? I mean, you know, you know it's very hard um, for, for you to pinpoint how or why a company innovated. But at the same time, you know, there are practical examples out there. I grew up as a child of the 80s, and, you know, American cars back in the 80s really stunk. Um, and that was in a time of quite severe American protectionism, um, protecting the U.S. 
uh, industry, the big three from Japanese import competition and others. And now you look around today and you see that, you know, American automobiles are actually pretty darn decent. And a lot of that is due to the intense competition they faced in, in the nineties and two thousands. So, so that's, you know, the, the unseen benefits are, are quite, are quite huge. Now, um, there are, of course, seen costs, right? And and those are um, lost jobs and or or industries that that go out of business. And that that disruption, while again, I I think is quite beneficial to the overall economy. We want uh, businesses to to grow and businesses to die, and we want that kind of dynamism. But at the same time, that gives protectionists their hook, right? It's very easy to point to a lost job. It's very easy to point to a steel plant closing um, in the Rust Belt. The president loves to talk about all these factories that are burnt out in, in the Rust Belt and so forth. So, so that is the, the, I think the primary criticism is the, um, the loss of jobs, the loss of industry. But it ignores, again, all of the seen benefits. It also ignores just kind of the macro picture of things. I mean, it's very difficult to say that, you know, over the last 30 years, as the, you know, unemployment's at, what, under 4% right now, um, manufacturing output is at an all-time high, um, you know, the U.S. economy is, is GDP is, is, is up, um, you know, substantially over the last 30 years, as is employment, all these other things. It's really hard to say that trade, you know, dragged these down. Um, but the protectionist side likes to, again, they, they, they focus on the narrow costs while ignoring the broader benefits. Yeah, I mean, it seems like um, this is the Trump administration's approach, not just focusing on the narrow cost, but but focusing on the narrow cost for very specific sectors of the economy, and and not necessarily those sectors of the economy that we would traditionally have regarded as extremely competitive. So things like the steel industry. Um, I mean, let me just ask you, your overall sense of the Trump administration's trade strategy, such as it is, is this, uh, you know, is this an attempt to get, you know, quote unquote, better deals, or is this uh, tariffs for the sake of tariffs? Right, and so far the evidence is is not looking good for the administration. Um, you know, I I think it, it's it, let's talk about what they are doing well first, and then we'll talk about the other stuff. Um, you know, I think that that buried in the administration's trade policy are some actual good points, and good points that that even free traders like me, or you know, others at Cato and elsewhere, are uh, have been making for years. You know, look, um, Chinese industrial policy and intellectual property violations are a pretty significant issue for. Uh, um, for U.S. companies and for the global economy, um, certain rules at the WTO with respect to, for example, developing country status and all these kind of boring things. I mean, look, the, the, those are are need to be updated. Um, the NAFTA needed to be updated. You know, so there are there are issues out there that that are legitimate. And so I think the administration, when it focuses on those issues, is is not wrong to do so. The problem, and it's it really you know kind of wipes out those kind of good things, um, is is twofold. One is that they also are focusing on a lot of things that that we should not be um, focusing on. Like you said, the supporting of, of uh, dying or uh, 
the supporting of certain industries. You know, I, I don't even want to call the steel industry dying because steel industry output was actually steady um, at about 90 million tons uh, for the last several years. And so it's not like the steel industry was dying. It's just certain segments of the steel industry that, that you know, had very kind of old and inefficient technologies. They were, they were doing pretty poorly. So, you know, first you have the administration, you know, this, this focus on kind of jobs of the past, uh, this very nostalgonomics of sorts, right? You know, that, that half the country should be, um, you know, punching a clock and going to work on an assembly line, which is just crazy when you think of modern manufacturing, which, you know, is actually a lot more folks with STEM, you know, education and, and engineering degrees and the rest and a lot of robots and all that kind of cool stuff. Um, so this, this obsession with old school manufacturing is, is a problem. Um, and of course, the use of tariffs to protect that manufacturing um, is is an even bigger problem because we see from tons of economic literature that tariffs um, are both costly for downstream consumers, but also re- rarely actually succeed in in helping a protected industry get back on its feet. The, the other problem is that um, their actual revision of our trade agreements um, has proven to be pretty uninspiring um, by making them really more protectionist, whether it's on the intellectual property side or on automotive rules of origin, you name it. Um, and then finally, you know, on the China, on the big China issue, you know, once again, um, they're, they're s- most of their criticisms are, are valid in terms of, um, you know, Chinese government policy and so forth. But the means by which they're going to try to fix these is, is really um, wrong-headed. And, you know, look, um, you know, and that's tariffs, of course, a focus on tariffs. And the, the fact is that we don't know if these tariffs are going to do the trick, um, but we have a ton of history that says that it's, it's quite unlikely. And even worse, we have a lot of history that shows that there are other means to achieve um, reforms in, in other countries. And, you know, those things like trade agreements, like the TPP that we abandoned, uh, WTO disputes, which we've really downplayed, um, and even though the Chinese comply um, with adverse WTO decisions. These types of things the administration has ignored. Instead, they're pursuing tariffs. And, you know, so those tariffs, they typically don't uh, achieve the type of reforms you want from foreign governments. We have a long history of using what's called Section 301, which is what we're using now in this China dispute. Um, the, so far, the evidence is not very good that the Chinese are going to cave. Um, you know, they're making a concession here or there, but they're also retaliating heavily against the United States and hurting U.S. exporters. Um, it's also injecting a ton of uncertainty into the markets right now, as yesterday's 800-point drop on the heels of president, the president's tariff man tweets uh, makes clear. And um, it's, of course, also hurting uh, U.S. consumers. And so, you know, maybe, you know, they, they pull a rabbit out of the hat here, but it's kind of like, you know, using chemotherapy to solve a, a head cold. Um, you know, we haven't pursued the, the tried and true methods and we're instead pursuing quite a radical medicine for, for no clear reason. Yeah, I, I honestly feel like I'm having deja vu here to all of the discussions that we have about the Trump administration's foreign policy, which is often pinpointing problems that are very real problems and then pursuing solving them in a way that is just completely counterproductive. Um, but I, I 
I do want to for one second pivot this discussion a little. So we're primarily coming at this from the foreign policy, national security point of view. And the Trump administration has made the argument that this is a national security issue, that bolstering these, uh, bolstering these industries is about national security. If you look at the national security strategy, it's about maintaining America's industrial base. Do you think there is any truth to those arguments? Yeah. So, I mean, I think theoretically, Free traders have a um, a legitimate. They believe national security is a legitimate exception to a broadly free trade uh, approach to policy. So, I mean, even a guy like Milton Friedman has said, you know, look, national security is the one area where there there may be a legitimate um, uh, reason for protectionism. You know, um, and you can see that in the past. U.S. policy has used national security protectionism in a way that I think few free traders would really um, uh, disagree with, at least broadly. You know, for example, <laughs> when you restrict the exportation of um, nuclear materials, right? You know, look, legitimate national security issue here. Um, on the other hand, uh, the the main point about national security protectionism, and I think what free traders really uh, emphasize, is that it deserves the exact same level of scrutiny as any other government intervention in a market economy. So, you know, just because they, <laughs> the national security flag is waved doesn't mean you just suddenly turn your brain off and stop examining the actual justifications for that national security decision. And, you know, so far in the case of steel and aluminum and now autos, um, and in the case of China, the administration just has utterly failed to make a legitimate national security case. And, you know, steel is really the, the obvious one. I already mentioned before that the steel industry was actually pretty healthy at the time we imposed all these tariffs. Imports were about 30% of the U.S. market, which, you know, means basically that the U.S. industry had 70% market share. Um, production and output were steady. Profits were way up. Their stocks were way up. Um, Employment had, of course, gone down, but that was almost entirely due to productivity gains because back in the 80s, it took like 10 man hours to make a ton of steel, and now it makes takes under two man hours to make a ton of steel. So that means you're going to need five times fewer jobs. So um, when you applied – oh, and, and oh, by the way, Secretary of Defense Mattis wrote a letter basically saying that the Defense Department only needed 3% of all – U.S. steel production, and that he didn't think global tariffs were in any way necessary and might actually undermine national security by alienating allies and blowing up supply chains and the rest. So, you know, when you apply that level, uh, kind of a, just a basic level of skepticism to the national security argument, it falls apart. And I think that's, you know, that's what's missing in a lot of the Trump administration's trade policies is just that level of due diligence and that level of scrutiny. And instead, they're basically taking the view that the minute national security is invoked, the WTO can't examine their decisions, U.S. courts can't examine their decisions, and the public should just shut up and let it go. And, you know, I, I don't think it's just libertarians who would argue that that's a really, really wrong-headed approach. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. But let me, let me just pick up on that because uh, I think the um, national security argument 
that the Trump administration has made in at least a couple of places is probably bogus, uh, that they don't even believe it. And so the question that I'm having and that I'm wondering if you can help here, and this is asking a lot, I know, um, but explain Trump to me because what I don't, when he tweets, uh, you know, don't worry, tariffs are great. We're raking in billions. It's pretty clear the guy's never been told how tariffs work. Uh, you know, using these national security arguments, it, it just, to me, I, why? Trump, we, we stopped looking for grand theories from Trump, I guess. But what explains, I think your phrase nostalgianomics is my favorite so far, because to me that comes closest to an explanation of why Trump's pursuing what seem like wildly sort of outdated policies, but then he's so inconsistent on top of it. What is the, I mean, how do you predict what he's going to do next on trade? No, you, you I mean, look, you really can't. Although, although I, I think that at this point, you know, we have enough uh, data points to establish a few things. And, you know, one, it's not very uh, groundbreaking, but the dude likes tariffs. I mean, the, he really thinks that tariffs are this, you know, magical tool that both raises revenue uh, for the treasury and encourages domestic investment um, and somehow gets our trading partners to do whatever he wants. Um, and you know, I think that, that that really comes from the fact that he has a lot of priors um, and his priors come from the real estate world and his background is kind of a, of a zero-sum world. And it really seems that the president can't uh, easily grasp the idea of a mutually beneficial transaction. Um, and that's, of course, what most trade is. It is not, you know, when, when I click a button and buy something from Amazon, um, the, the producer of that widget is, has not taken advantage of me. And he's not stealing my money. I'm, I'm voluntarily and typically on Amazon quite happily giving it to him. And that is lost on a president who kind of has this zero-sum worldview. Um, and it also, we, we see that the president doesn't really think of trade as transactions among individuals, which of course any economist will, will tell you. He really sees it as, uh, you know, the, the trade balance is uh, foreign countries uh, selling America stuff, kind of as if it's, you know, really just, you know, a whole, you know, shipments of goods uh, basically being launched at the United States by foreign countries, which of course is crazy talk. But, you know, look, at, at this point, I think it's pretty safe to say that this is not a bluff, um, that, that these are the president's priors and that he will not be uh, convinced otherwise. Um, and, and so, you know, we are, <laughs> we just kind of have to, have to adapt accordingly. Um, you know, I, it's, it's good to see that the, the little boomlet that occurred in September and August of um, conservative commentators calling the president the most brilliant radical free trader of our time have, have disappeared. I haven't, I haven't heard uh, that argument made in the last uh, few months, particularly after things like yesterday's tariff man tweet storm. Um, no, I mean, instead, it seems like the president really likes tariffs. He uh, thinks that foreigners pay them. Uh, and he thinks they're a really great way to force our trading partners to do what he wants. And, um, you know, that the, the, the first parts, you know, basic are, are failing basic economics. The last is a little more difficult. 
You know, I mean, guys like Paul Krugman have talked about things like strategic trade theory and the ability to, to use trade barriers to, to achieve more market access or whatever. Um, and I doubt the president is, is citing Paul Krugman when he thinks of that. Um, but, you know, geopolitics, as you guys know, is, is a lot trickier than, than kind of Econ 101. And so, you know, what happens, uh, what, how countries respond to these tariffs and these threats uh, is, is a, a far more difficult thing to predict. Yeah, so uh, you know, so I think I think we've dissected really quite uh, effectively there Trump's own opinions on foreign policy. But I think a lot of people uh, interpreted Trump's rise as you know that the public is very anti-free trade. You've written actually that this this isn't so much the case. Um, how do you think the public's appetite for free trade looks going forward? Is there hope for free trade here, or are we basically stuck in this sort of Trumpite or or Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren world where protect Protectionism is now the new norm. Yeah, and so I think that we are. Uh, so I'll give you the pessimistic and the optimistic. Um, the pessimistic part is that our leadership, so uh, the, the leaders of both parties right now, are pretty darn protectionist. Um, pretty sold on the idea that globalization and free trade have been uh, bad, and that protectionism uh, or some sort of additional trade regulation is is necessary. Uh, and you see that from um, you know really both parties these days. Um, and so you know, given the new leadership, Democratic leadership in Congress is really the same old Democratic leadership. And given those politicians' fealty to you know labor unions and, and the rest, uh, along with a Trump-led GOP that you know maybe Republican senators and congressmen tend to still be free traders, but they're not going to speak up on this stuff as they've proven over the last two years. Um, you know we're in a bad moment for political leadership, but but there is good news, and the good news is I think twofold. Um, first is that the general public is more supportive of trade and globalization right now than at any point in recent history. Uh, and the numbers are, are actually kind of staggering. I mean, you're looking at support for globalization and uh, foreign trade above 70% um, by multiple pollsters like Gallup and Pew and the rest. Uh, even among Republicans, uh, support for trade agreements has rebounded significantly. Um, you also see um, Democrats are increasingly supportive of, of trade, and that's a, a good thing in that they're um, starting these Democratic voters and the kind of Trump effect do seem to be affecting uh, some parts of the Democratic political class. And that gets to the, the second kind of good thing, is that you are seeing it at, a, at, the, at the junior politician level. Um, younger Democratic politicians supporting free trade or supporting um, uh, taking kind of more of a neoliberal approach, so opposing tariffs, supporting trade agreements, um, but also wanting some sort of kind of robust adjustment assistance program. Um, and you're seeing, you're still seeing a lot of Republican junior politicians uh, maintaining the parties trade views. So in the long term, um, you know, there is a little hope. And, and let's face it, um, even the president's own actions kind of speak to the fact that, that uh, protectionism just ain't selling with the public. You know, in March of this year, he sold these steel and aluminum tariffs as this 
um, you know, just on straight protectionist grounds. You know, you, you don't have a country if you don't have a steel industry, all that kind of stuff. These days, you don't really hear that much of that. You instead hear them selling their tariffs on, on uh, free trade grounds, right? It's how you open markets and seal new trade deals and, and the rest of this. So even among the, the protectionists, you're not seeing a, a straight protectionist argument. And I think that bodes well for the, the, the future, just if we can get past the present. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. I think as I watch, you know, the domestic politics of this, which is for me only a, a hobby, not a profession, thankfully, um, it, it, the trade equation seems to be shifting because this last midterm election cycle, you saw the increasing evidence that Democrats represent the urban uh, areas where there are more highly educated, well-paid folks who are doing pretty well, especially thanks to globalization. And Republicans increasingly represent the places that Democrats used to want to funnel assistance to, but now we're only full of Republicans. And so you have to believe that if, as that continues, uh, the dynamics eventually for the political parties have to have to shift. Yeah. And, and you know, especially in, as you said, urban centers and also suburbs, right? You know, you have these, if, if, if the Democrats become the party of uh, of the suburbs and urban centers, then yeah, I mean, I think you're right that you're, you're inevitably going to see a shift because, um, you know, those areas are the places that, that really are the winners of globalization. Um, and uh, those are the areas that, that you think you'd, you'd um, you know, you're not going to see a lot of folks, um, you know, supporting uh, tariffs on iPhones, right? And so, um, to the extent the party is responsive to that, uh, yeah, in the long term, it's it's going to have to shift. You know, the other good thing about the midterms is that I think you're also seeing Republicans a bit shell shocked by uh, the problems they experienced in certain, even in rural areas. Um, you know, there there was a uh, an analysis done not too long ago that right after the midterms that showed that, you know, even in rural areas, uh, the Republicans vote share uh, decreased more substantially than it did nationally, um, particularly in areas that are, you know, like soybean, major soybean export uh, districts. And so again, you know, there, there is um, a check, a political check on, uh, on protectionism, which is, which is good. Well, that's, um, that's good to hear some good news, but it seems like we're in for another couple of years of crazy Trump trade policies. So um, I'm, I'm guessing we're going to have to have you on again uh, in the near to medium future to explain what the heck just happened next time. Scott, uh, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. And uh, as always, we'd love to thank our producer, Jeff Geld, and to everyone at home for listening. You can now find us on Twitter at Power Problems uh, to continue the conversation.